Amos chapter 7. That is a, a small book that we don't use much. It's found between Joel and Obadiah. So I'll give you a minute to, to get there. While, while you're getting there, I'll, I'll lay some groundwork, kind of some ground rules for the way I'm looking at things. We have, in the religious culture of today, we have a certain camp of people that, that look at Israel as God's chosen people, as though they still are those that are specially set apart, and then the church, the, the, the saved, the redeemed, they're something different. As though there's something powerful in the human bloodline. And what I'm here to posit tonight is that Israel was chosen. God's re- plan of redemption was always meant for the entire world. From the beginning, it was meant for the entire world. Hebrews were not the only ones saved. We know that Abraham was saved. He was considered righteous. It was imputed to him as righteousness that he believed God, that he trusted God, that he was obedient. But he wasn't the first and he wasn't the only. Before Abraham was called Abraham, he met a king of Salem. Melchizedek, who was called a priest of the Most High God. So someone not affiliated with the Hebrews was already following and serving the Lord. And then the earliest book in the the Bible, now it doesn't go earlier than creation, but it was written before the idea of of, um, the story of Abraham, Job. Which tribe was Job from? I mean, all the Hebrews traced their lineage back to which of the 12 tribes they came from, right? And if the tribes of Judah, or if the tribes of of Israel are the only chosen people of God, the only ones that would be saved, which tribe was Job from? And yet Job was called by God himself the most righteous man on earth. So my point is that the plan of redemption was always meant for the whole earth, for all the world. This doctrine of election that they come with, God elected the whole world, all that would come to him on his terms. That is who is elect. Israel was set apart, not only so that there could be a provision for a bloodline to to provide the Savior, but also to be an example, a picture of everything, a picture of God's plan at work in this microcosm. And from the beginning, that's how it was supposed to be. God told Abraham, in you, in your seed, will all the nations of the earth be blessed. It was never supposed to be limited to just Israel. It was just, look, you are the wellspring. In you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And you could go into saying that in your seed will all the nations of the world be blessed. People talk about whether or not they are the seed of Abraham. Well, what does a seed do? In Genesis, we hear that God gave all kinds of fruit-bearing seed that bore seed after their own kind. Jesus kind of mentioned that when he said, if you are the children of Abraham, you would be like Abraham. You would obey. You would trust. But you don't believe that you're not Abraham's children. You're children of the devil. So anyway, he, he addressed that. And so all of the prophecies regarding Israel were meant to be a picture of how God would deal with the entire world. Because salvation was for all the world. For those that would come, they were all elect. So as we look at a, at a prophet, and as we look at a prophecy that is directed toward Israel... You know, one could nitpick and say, oh, you're taking that out of context because it was written to Israel. I'm going to say that God can, through the Holy Spirit, speak to us, even through prophecies directed toward Israel itself and teach us a lesson for us today. I have, in my literal mind, I'll give you another example because this will also come up too. Um, I got involved in a, in a study on the word cornerstone. Do we know what a cornerstone is? We think of a cornerstone as being that, that big stone that is set at the foundation of the building. It's the first one. It sets the location. It sets the corner. It sets the address. That's the, that's the point of building for an entire building. 
And so we have that in Scripture. God himself says, Behold, I lay in Zion a cornerstone. And it is, of course, a prophecy of Jesus Christ. But as I look into that, he's also called the chief head of the corner. The head of the corner. Which would be at the, at the top. Also sometimes interpreted as a keystone. Well, a keystone was actually fitted at the top of the corner. Adjoining two walls together. And if you look at the Hebrew word used in that Isaiah prophecy about the cornerstone, the word is pinach. The Hebrew word is pinach. Which is translated also as a bulwark or a tower and sometimes as a pinnacle. All things that are not the bottom. And in my literal mind, I want to say, well, which is it? Which one is it? It can't be the bottom foundation stone and be the top stone, the crowning glory of it all. But yes, it can. Because we're told in the epistles that Jesus Christ is all in all. In him all things consist. Without him nothing was made. He is all in all. So there are no mixed metaphors. Every metaphor we have is just another descriptor of Christ. Because he is all of those things. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Beautiful picture is a tradition of the pagans. This is another thing where even God takes the things of the worldly and makes them something for his glory. A pagan tradition in setting a cornerstone is they would offer a blood sacrifice on the ground where they were going to lay the cornerstone. Jesus Christ offered his own blood as a sacrifice on the ground and then set himself as the cornerstone. His gospel, his atoning sacrifice is the cornerstone upon which his church would be built. And then he himself is also that keystone at the top, the crowning glory of it all. It's not either or. It's both and, and, and. There's no end to the scriptures. So I say that because that will partially come up later. But also because here in Amos, yes, we have a prophecy about Israel. But it can be true about that time in Israel. And still be true about some point in the future. And still teach us something about something else yet farther in the future. Because it's not either or. It's both and. Everything in scripture is multidimensional because God is beyond definition or comprehension or limitation to one dimension. So with that said, did that give you enough time to find Amos chapter 7? Amos chapter 7, I'll start at verse 1. Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me. And also before I go any further, let it be known that you know, when we think of the major prophets, we think of educated men such as Isaiah or Ezekiel who were priests and uh, almost aristocracy. Amos was a shepherd. Amos tended flocks. And yet the Lord God spoke through him. Never despise the small things. We heard someone say that in our service this morning. And it just reminds me again, never despise the small things. Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me. And behold, he formed grasshoppers in the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth. And lo, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. And it came to pass that when they had made an end of eating the grass of the land, then I said, O Lord God, forgive, I beseech thee. By whom shall Jacob arise? For he is small. The Lord repented for this. It shall not be, saith the Lord. Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, the Lord God called to contend by fire, and it devoured the great deep, and did eat up a part. Then said I, O Lord God, cease, I beseech thee. By whom shall Jacob arise? For he is small. The Lord repented for this. This also shall not be, saith the Lord God. Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord stood upon a wall made by a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said unto me, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, a plumb line. Then said the Lord, behold, I will set a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not again pass by them any more. And the high places of Isaac shall be desolate. 
and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Then Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent to Jeroboam king of Israel, saying, Amos hath conspired against thee in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos saith, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive out of their own land. Also Amaziah said unto Amos, O thou seer, go, flee thee away into the land of Judah, and there eat bread, and prophesy there, but prophesy not again any more at Bethel. For it is the king's chapel, and it is the king's court. Then answered Amos and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was an herdsman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said unto me, Go, prophesy unto my people Israel. Now therefore hear thou the word of the Lord. Thou sayest, Prophesy not against Israel, and drop not thy word against the house of Isaac. Therefore thus saith the Lord, Thy wife shall be an harlot in the city, and thy sons and thy daughters shall fall by the sword, and thy land shall be divided by line, and thou shalt die in a polluted land. And Israel shall surely go into captivity forth of his, forth of his land. I'll stop reading there and... Keep in mind what I said. Some of the things won't be an exact parallel because we no longer have Jeroboam. It was obviously a prophecy against Jeroboam. But there are multidimensional meanings. It's not either or. It's both and. But what we see in this picture of the history of Israel, which is to be a picture of the redemptive history of mankind is we see first in in the first six verses, we see God giving visions of judgment against the whole earth. First, it's locusts that would devour everything and leave everyone in famine. Punishment by hunger, judgment by hunger. But a righteous man, Amos, prayed. Much like Abraham pleaded with God for Sodom and Gomorrah. For a hundred men, will you spare the city? Yes. For fifty men, will you spare the city? Yes. For ten men, will you spare the city? Abraham pleaded with God for Sodom and Gomorrah. Amos here pleaded for Israel. And because of the intercessory prayer of a righteous man, God withheld his judgment. And he was just in doing so. Because God can do what he wants. Had he leveled judgment, he would have been just in doing so. But by having mercy upon the imprecatory prayer of a righteous man, he was also just. So then we have here a a vision of another judgment, another coming judgment. This one by fire that would dry up even the deep. So hot that it even evaporates the oceans. An all-consuming fire. And again, a righteous man prays. Amos prays and says, O Lord, forgive and cease. For who will help Jacob? He's small. And again, for the prayer of a righteous man, God relents. And it's this third vision where I feel compelled to speak tonight. Because this is a vision of a judgment that is coming, but we don't see the end. Do you know what a plumb line is? For those of us who don't know, a plumb line, sometimes it's called a plumb bob, sometimes it's called a plummet. It'd be a lead weight, good heavy lead weight, attached to a string, attached to a cord, some kind of line, and the weight of it will make it come straight down. Perfectly perpendicular to the earth. We have levels for that now. Um, you know, the, the advancements in calibration, we can now calibrate a level to sit against the wall and there's that bubble that will tell you whether or not something is vertical. But we didn't have that for a long time, so we only had the level that was long and could tell you if it was level horizontal. But you needed a plumb line to tell if something was upright. 
because you could set it against a wall and if the wall was leaning away or to it, you'd see because you knew that that lead weight, the gravity on the lead weight had that line perfectly upright. <coughs> and I, as I was looking at this, I, I saw one commentary that talked about the, the difference in the plumb line versus the level. And one of the reasons we have this trouble is because mankind, in our human pride, we tend to use a level. We judge ourselves according to the horizontal. Meaning, I'll judge myself compared to this guy next to me. Well, I'm, I'm not as bad as he is. When I apply the level, it comes up on my side. God judges by the vertical. So we have a plumb line. We know what a plumb line is. And we see in this vision that he sees simply the Lord standing on a wall that was built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And I talked about the multidimensional nature of these metaphors and these allegories. And I want to contend that for us tonight, generations and generations after Amos gave his prophecy, keeping in mind that Israel is just a picture of the world, God is still going to set a plumb line in the midst of Israel. In the midst of the world. The Lord is still going to set a plumb line in the midst of the world to judge whether we be upright. He said he saw the Lord standing on a wall that was made with a plumb line. With a plumb line. The plumb line is the standard. It's the standard by which we would judge a wall. Because of the gravity. Because we know that it's perfectly upright. We can judge the integrity of a wall or of a structure. As we're building it, we can know that it's upright. And I would contend that in addition to being the plumb line, in addition to the Lord setting the plumb line amidst the people, that the Lord also is himself the plumb line. And I would also contend that the Lord is the wall that was built with a plumb line. And the Lord was even the plumb line that was used in building the wall. Because the plumb line is the standard. The plumb line is the standard that is set by God in his word, in his revelation of himself. The wall was built and is still being built. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, a precious stone, a sure foundation. And Jesus said of himself that the stone that the builder rejected has now become the head of the corner and he who falls on it will be broken, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. For the stone to be broken when it falls on it, we know that from masonry that if you have the cornerstone and it sets the tone for an entire building, then there is some hewing of the stone that must go on. And as you go on in building the wall, there is, there is stone craft that goes on where you have to knock off edges, grind off pieces. The stone must be broken to fit into the mold. So the wall that is being built with a plumb line was started with the sure foundation. And that wall is the church that the Lord is building. All those that come, they fall on the cornerstone and they're broken. They're broken so that they may be fitted into a wall. And that wall is being built ever more upright. Because keep in mind at the top of the wall, that top corner, that's also the Lord, the crown and glory of the church. He is both the foundation upon which his church is built, the gospel, and he is also the crowning glory of the church. So the Lord stands atop this wall that he's built, using the standard that he set. And he comes... And he's holding the plumb line. And the plumb line is the life that he led here. Perfect. Sinless. 
guileless, the only person ever in human form to be able to keep perfectly the law of God and maintain perfect communion with God the Father at all times. See, again, God judges by the vertical, not the horizontal. God's holiness is so high, so magnificent, His glory so other. That's what holiness is, is otherness. His glory is so other that there is no horizontal level that can be used to judge. You must judge by the vertical. And truth be told, Jesus is the only one who was ever able to walk completely upright. He was the only one, and is the only one, and is the only one there will ever be that is able to keep entirely the law of God. He's the only standard. So how did any of us get fit into the wall? When we say we're saved and built into, a, you know, in our churches, we say we're built into a spiritual building, but that wall is upright. But we're not, even in our sinful state. In Isaiah, right before, right after, um, right after. God says, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation of stone. He also says, Judgment also will I lay to the line, and righteousness, righteousness to the plummet. The plummet is another word for a plummet. Righteousness is the measure of the plummet. Jesus was 100% righteous, 100% upright. None of us can attain to that. None of us even come near it. Luckily, I believe it's in Jeremiah where the Lord is called with many names throughout Scripture. But he's called the Lord our righteousness. Abraham believed God and was counted to him for righteousness. That's how we are upright. When we, when we obey God, when we surrender to him, when we give ourselves to him, true repentance is not just a turnaround in the road and a decision to make other decisions. But true repentance is giving up on self-will and giving up on my way And saying, my way won't get me there. It has to be the Lord's way. Total surrender is true repentance. Total repentance is obedience. That is what the Lord requires. Just like Abram. Who was content to stay where he lived. But God said, go my way. Go to another country. And Abram believed God. Trusted him. And obeyed. He repented. He went God's way. It was accounted to him as for righteousness. So for those of us who have been saved. The only way that we know we've been saved. Is because we fully surrendered to God. We fully and truly repented. We said enough of my way. My way is no way. I'll go God's way. We get that mixed up a lot. Especially in this time of being able to accept Christ. Or being able to just believe. Or just have faith. As though that is something we can conjure in and of ourselves. We can't conjure enough faith. We can't manufacture enough belief. All that we can do is surrender. That is the only thing we can do in and of ourselves. And even that, not so much. Because the Lord gives us repentance unto salvation. But that is the only act that we can do is surrender. But we get that mixed up in our culture of today. We, we talked uh, last week. Um, we had a preacher talked about when Moses smote the rock. You know, Moses twice... Twice, once in Exodus, once in Numbers, the people were thirsty. And because they didn't have anything else to whine about, they whined about that. Very whiny people, those Israelites. Much like we are today. So they didn't have their immediate satisfaction. They said, there's no water. And God said, okay, Moses, go to the rock and smite it. He smote the rock, water came out. No problem. Everyone was satisfied for a while. You go to Numbers, and the same situation. People are thirsty. This time, God doesn't say, go smite the rock. This time, he says, take your rod and go speak to the rock. 
But Moses smote the rock. And because Moses smote the rock, and God says, because you didn't trust me, you won't enter the promised land. And what that reminds me of is that we must come to God on his terms, not our terms. And the things that work for someone else or the things that work in another time past may not work for the present time. We come on God's terms, in God's time, in God's way. Everything is dependent on following the Lord in the moment. So when we do that, when we do that, then our obedience is imputed unto us as righteousness, just like Abraham. Imputed righteousness. The righteousness of Christ. The Lord our righteousness. Now when the plummet is laid to me, I am upright. Not because of anything I've done, but because of the Lord Jesus Christ who imputes his righteousness to me. And I will pass the test of the plummet. What about the rest of the world? See, we have two judgments. We have the locusts and we have the fire. Just like we have in times past. And we've seen in times past with the flood and with uh, plagues and, and cataclysmic events. That there are times when God brings judgment upon people or upon entire regions of the planet. Sometimes even the whole world is impacted by his judgment. We see those times as we look back through history where God has carried out his judgment. What we don't see are the times that judgment was meted out and then repented of because righteous men implored the Lord on our behalf. How many times has judgment been forthcoming and has been withheld because God is infinite in His mercy? And righteous people have called out to God on our behalf. Someone wrote once uh, in a song, That, Lord, I thank you for the storms I never saw. Because we don't know about those. But we know this is sure. Here were two judgments that were averted by the prayer of a righteous man. But then we see that I will set in the midst of my people Israel a plumb line. And how how does he word it? I will again, I will not again pass by them anymore. Which means I won't withhold judgment anymore. There is coming a time when the Lord will come back. And the plumb line is set. The standard has been set. And the entire world will be judged according to that plumb line. According to the law of God as exemplified and demonstrated by the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because he exemplified that, he is qualified to judge. So he is both the plummet and the one holding it. To judge the entire earth. So that anyone who does not measure up as being upright. They're lacking in integrity. They're structures that are not meant to stand. And so they will fall. See a plummet is used in building. A plumb line is used in building. You, You can hang one from a place and as you erect the wall. You can keep it straight. And that is what the Lord does today as he builds his church. As people come to him and they fall on that cornerstone and he breaks them and fits them into the building. The plummet of his righteousness is there, fitting the, fitting the walls as they go up so that they're perfectly just, perfectly upright. A fitting edifice to be crowned with his glory. But a plumb line can also be used for destruction. Because in determining the integrity of a structure, you set a plumb line. And you see to what degree a wall is leaning. Or to what degree a wall is bowed. Or to what degree a foundation is crumbling. And when a structure fails the test of the plumb line, it must be destroyed. See, this happens with us when we're saved also. Because the Lord comes 
the Lord comes to us and brings conviction upon us. And in our human pride, how many of you have had this, where you bargain with God, you tell Him all the good things that you've done, or all the bad things that you haven't done, and all the things that, really, Lord, I merit your mercy. I'm not as bad as the neighbor. Or, Lord, if you save me, I'll do this for you. Anyone, anyone do that? Or anyone just say, in your heart, I'm not that bad. I never sinned with anyone like Bathsheba. And the Lord had mercy on David. Anyone ever use that horizontal level? Because that feels better than trying to measure yourself up to a plumb line. But the thing is, there comes a time when as the Lord breaks us, as He sets that plumb line, we see ourselves next to His holy standard. We know that we can't stand. Amen. So we fall on that cornerstone. Amen. But when you go to build a structure, when you go to lay the foundation, or when you tear down a building to build something new, can you just raise it to the ground and then restart? If it's on a solid foundation, yes. But for so many of us, because we haven't known Christ, actually for all of us, when we first come to Christ, all of our foundation is built on our own works. We try to manufacture a foundation on our own works. But Lord, look at what I've done for you. Lord, since I was small, I've gone to church every week. My mommy and my daddy took me to church. And now that I'm bigger, I like going to church. So, Lord, you have to save me. Lord, I'm not mean to the other kids. Lord, I work hard at my job. Lord, I do well at school. We build foundations on crumbling sand, and they're not sure foundations. And when we finally see ourselves next to that plumb line, and finally throw ourselves on the shore foundation, on the cornerstone, then in order to build, the Lord must use that plummet to dig down to bedrock, to dig out, to excavate all of that. That's where we humble ourselves and empty ourselves of all that is us. It all must go. So that the only foundation laid for our righteousness is that precious cornerstone, Jesus Christ. That plumb line of righteousness that Jesus uses to destroy all of our unsure foundations so that he may exalt us in due time, some scripture says, or build us up into a spiritual temple. We're living stones, you know, for Peter tells us that. We're small stones. You know, the, the word for cornerstone Jesus says, upon this rock I will build my church. Petra is a big rock, like a boulder, like a cliff. It's a big rock. Peter uses a different word in the Greek. I can't remember what the word is right now. I think it's lignos or something like that, but it means small pebbles, small rocks. Compared to Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, we are small rocks but joined in together to build a spiritual house. A building not made with hands. But before we can be built up like that, we have to be cleared out. And he uses the plumb line of God's righteousness. God's righteousness, God's justice, God's law, that standard. And when we see we don't measure up and we fall on the rock... We're broken. All the debris is cleared out. We can build on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ. And then we're built up. But the time will come when the plumb line is laid to all the earth. See, now the Holy Spirit comes to us individually at the time that is appropriate for Him. But there's a time when judgment will be withheld no more. A time coming when he will delay judgment no more. I will pass by them again no more. And again, he'll lay out the plumb line.
And for those of us who who have repented, who have fallen on the rock and allowed him to break us and dig out the dirty old foundation and start over with something sure. We're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So when he lays righteousness to the plummet, we'll pass the test. But what about our neighbors? What about our friends? What about our family members who have not yet come to that place where they've sought the Lord out? What about those who have not repented but are still clinging to their own ability to earn their own way? Or their delusions that that somehow because they've not been as bad as other people on a horizontal level that they could measure up to God's plummet of righteousness. Or those who just don't think about it because they refuse to believe. In that day, the same plummet that the same plumb line that the Lord is now using to build up his church, he'll use that same standard to judge the rest of the world. And just as you can use one for building, you use one for destroying. He's the standard. We can't measure up without him. And truth be told, even with him, we can't measure up which is why he measures for us. See, it doesn't say that Abraham believed and that made him righteous. That would be totally different. It says it was imputed unto him as righteousness. Imputation means something that was not his was placed upon him. His trusting God, his obeying God didn't make him righteous. We see that in the mistakes that he made later in life. I mean, he went to Egypt and, and lied about his wife and put her, put her in danger just to save his own skin. He made poor decisions. He wasn't righteous because he obeyed. Because he obeyed, he had righteousness imputed to him. That's the beauty of the liberty we have in Christ. We don't use our liberty as a... As a License for sin, but at the same time, we need not fear the fact that from time to time we will make miscalculations in judgment, or from time to time our pride in the flesh will just get in the way and we'll do really stupid things. We don't have to live in fear of the sin that we are going to commit in this fleshly body because when I repented, when I surrendered to the Lord, when I fell on the cornerstone. When I obeyed God, when I trusted Him, He didn't make me righteous. He imputed righteousness into me. See, we have so many people that think once you get saved, you have to act better, do better, be better, because it's all about do, 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 do. Now, if you've truly been saved, the Holy Spirit will work within you and change your heart and change your desires so that the fruits will be better decisions. And better actions and better behaviors. You will be a different person. But at the same time, it's about letting that outflowing of the Holy Spirit work out of you. Not about doing those things that you think make you a better person. We don't try to live up to a standard of behavior because we can't. That's the reason that we had the law of God to begin with. Was to show us that we can't. Anyone ever kept all ten of the commandments? If you say you have, you're a liar. And that's not me talking. That's, that's, that's scripture. No, no one has ever kept all of the law of God. So why in the world do some of us, we get saved and then we think that we have to then follow the commandments better? We can't follow the commandments better. Christ working and living through us will get us closer to the goal. But the liberty is in that as we draw nearer to Christ. He will live a righteous life through us. We don't have to do it. He's building the building. He 
is the plumb line. He is the standard. All we have to do is trust Him. Just trust Him. Oh, and if we could help the world to see that. And that is largely the role of the, of, of the church that the Lord has built. You know, we're, we're here as one of the Lord's churches. We're here built on that foundation that Christ has laid. We're here as stones that have been broken because we've fallen upon him. And he's broken us and shaped us into those walls. But like I said, it's not either or when it comes to the cornerstone. It's both and. He is the sure foundation. But when the church functions as it should then he is also the crowning glory atop the church, shining out into the community. He's the steeple of this building that you can see from a mile away. He is the crowning glory. We may not be perfect. In fact, we're not going to be perfect. As God's people, we'll never be perfect. We'll just be forgiven. But if we lead lives that are daily surrendered to him, much the same way that we surrendered to him the day we were saved, and if day by day by day we surrender to him and obey him and follow him and do our best just to do that, not to follow some superficial code of conduct to either try to appease the Lord who was already appeased at the cross or to appease the world who may call us hypocrites, well, what do they know anyway? Why are we trying to please the world? We're not of them. So instead of trying to live up to some kind of code of conduct or look a certain way, if we will just do our best day by day to follow the Lord, to trust Him day by day by day, day after day, then the church will function differently than we see a lot of the Lord's function, a lot of the Lord's churches functioning now. Where is the glory emanating in the communities from these churches? And I'm not talking, I'm talking about all the religious organizations that call themselves churches. Sure, they may have wonderful attractions that will bring people in, but where is the life transformation? Where is the light that shines out into the, into the countryside? Where is the beacon that makes people say, these are the people that have turned the world upside down like they said about the apostles. You know, we passed a car wreck and people can't help but rubberneck. You see something you don't see every day, you can't help but rubberneck, whether it's something magnificent or whether it's something devastating. We can't help but look. But I'm afraid too many times, look at all the stories we see in the news of, of churches, of pastors charged with heinous crimes. Or of... of Ministers or employees of church organizations charged with awful things. And the world can't help but rubberneck and look at that and say, look, that's the church. But how about if we as the Lord's church stop trying to do and trust Him? Measure yourself against the plummet and realize that you'll never measure up. But trust Him and allow Him to be your righteousness day after day after day. And a magnificent thing will happen. The church will be different than many of our churches are today. Like it was in Acts. And people looked at the church and said, these are the men that are turning the world upside down, the worldly people said. But how many thousands came to Christ and fell upon the cornerstone because of what they saw in that early church? If our churches aren't radiating the glory of God like they once did, it's not that the Lord has changed. Amen. Judgment is coming for the world, but perhaps what we're seeing in the failure of our churches is somewhat that plumb line being set down in the midst of God's people. 
maybe the judgment is that our churches are dying. I don't know anything about Matt Ludwig, but look around. And we, and we see time and time again, people will lament the fact that, oh, back 50 years ago, our church couldn't contain all the people. We had revival meetings and people were standing outside. We'd throw the windows open so people could listen on the lawn. Now if you can get people to fill the first four pews on a revival night, you're doing well. Right? Anyone seen that? So what's the difference? I've said this a a lot of times because it's just true. When you talk about the change in the church, there are only three parts of the equation. Either the culture has changed or God has changed or the church has changed. Yeah, certainly our culture is different than it was 50 years ago, but let's look at the church back in Acts when Christians were fed to the lions for sport. Has the culture really changed that much yet? Has God changed? Or is he the same yesterday, today, and forever? All right, some of you are shaking your heads no. So if the culture hasn't changed, and if God hasn't changed, that only leaves one thing. We must diagnose what's wrong with our churches. If we still want to be the beacons that shine out with the crowning glory of Christ into the communities and into our country and into the world, we must diagnose the issue within. We've got to measure ourselves against the plumb line. And maybe even for those of us who have been saved 50 years or more. Maybe it's time to come once again and fall on the cornerstone. Maybe you've only been saved for a few weeks. I'm not saying anyone's soul isn't secure. When God saves a person and they're reborn, you can't be unborn when you're born. So understand what I'm saying. I'm not talking about the loss of salvation, but I'm saying you can you can draw away and you can start to bow in the wall. And if the wall starts to bow, the structural integrity is weakened. And you won't shine forth with quite the glory that was intended for the structure. So maybe you've been saved for a few weeks. Maybe you need to fall on the cornerstone. Maybe you need to be replumbed. Actually, I would say all of us need to be replumbed every day. Amen. Come to Jesus. Come to the plumb line. If you're concerned about the state of our churches, come to the plumb line. Have that righteousness of Christ re-imputed for a day-to-day dose. Again, I say for eternity's sake, that's done. I don't want anyone to think that I'm saying you can lose the righteousness you have imputed in terms of salvation. But in terms of your effective, fervent prayer, it takes that close walk with the Lord. Amen. So if you're concerned that maybe judgment has come to the churches, come fall on the cornerstone. Have that righteousness re-imputed and then pray like Amos. Because God hears the fervent prayer of a righteous man. Fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, James tells us. If you're concerned about your own church, because we've got visitors here, then we need to do the same thing. If you're concerned about your family, same thing. But if you're here tonight and, and you've never been saved, then I warn you again that yes. Judgment may be impending on the Lord's churches. But there is coming a day when he'll withhold judgment on the world no more. And whether you believe or not, whether you feel like you measure up to your neighbor or not, wherever you are in that, If you've not come and fallen upon the cornerstone and been broken by him, you will still be measured by the plumb line. The perfect standard of God's holy righteousness. 
will still be, you'll still be measured against that. And you will not measure up. And like I said before, neither will I. But because I've trusted the Lord, his righteousness is imputed to me. So that in my stead, he measures up. So if you've not experienced that tonight, I want you to know that wherever you are. Now, I can't draw you to conviction. That's the Holy Spirit's job. But if you are feeling any conviction tonight, if if you have any question in your soul, and even if you don't feel conviction, but you know you've not been saved, and you know you can pray for conviction, and you should. Only that conviction is what's going to draw you to repentance toward salvation. But my goodness, if you know that that plumb line is coming, you should be praying for conviction. Pray for conviction. If you have, if you are feeling that conviction of the Holy Spirit, then come and throw yourself upon the cornerstone. It's the only way. You can't bargain with God. You can't use a horizontal level to judge yourself according to your fellow man. You can't judge your deeds using a level. You're going to be judged according to the plumb line. And the only way you'll measure up is to have his righteousness imputed to you. And the only way you get that is to trust him fully and completely. And we tend to think, well, I trust the Lord. And then you go do things on your own. In our daily lives, we do that, don't we? But when it comes to, well, everything, but particularly salvation, you can't hold anything out on your own doing. I don't, I don't even want to say anymore that, I've, that I got saved. Because if I say I got saved, that implies that I did something in the transaction. I'd rather say I've been saved and make it a passive verb. Because I had nothing to do with the transaction. All I did was surrender and the Lord did all the work. Amen. That's where you have to get. You have to get to that point that you just give up everything and fall on the rock. And let him break you. It may hurt. In fact, it should hurt and probably will hurt. Let it hurt. Because he's just breaking you to form you and shape you into a beautiful building. I guess, brother, let's, let's have a song.